Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Everyone, my name is Kimberly St. Julian Barnon. I'm the host of New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network Consortium. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Victoria Smulkin, Associate Professor of History at Wesleyan University. We're talking about her new book, A Sacred Space is Never Empty, A History of Soviet Atheism. Victoria, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Kimberly. Um, so... Before we jump into the book, I wanted to know a little bit about you. So what's your educational background? What got you interested in religion and atheism in the Soviet Union? Well, you know, I I think my background is maybe a little bit unorthodox for a historian. Um, I actually didn't get serious about history until after I had graduated from undergraduate. So, um, so after my BA, um, so my undergraduate education was this kind of broad liberal arts education and focused on literature and, um, and uh, art and writing. So I did photography and writing. Um, and it really was looking um, at the world. I graduated in 2002. So, and then my, uh, I went to university right near New York and so my my um my final year of undergrad was not, uh, you know it began with 911 and in a way that kind of um you know shook me out of this kind of 1990s mentality in which um, you know, as a as a kid growing up in the '90s, even though I came from the Soviet Union, you still kind of uh, imbibed this atmosphere where the world was just, you know, it was the, the Cold War had ended. There was, um, you know, the you know you were kind of coming of age with the internet, and you know there, there was economic growth, and you just thought everything was going to get better, and so you know you could indulge all sorts of. Um, you know, self-searching and, you know, trying to figure out how to be your most authentic self and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, that's really kind of who, who I was an undergraduate. And, um, and I even went to art school for high school. So, um, yeah, so, so kind of this kind of wake up call that happened, um, when, um, you know, with 9-11 and the aftermath of that just kind of, turned my thinking to different kinds of questions and just made me realize that, you know, it made me much more interested in the world and in the kind of genealogies of how we got to where we were. And um, I had a couple years off after undergraduate and I just read a lot. And I realized I'd initially thought I might apply to graduate school for literature, but I realized actually that the questions that interested me were historical questions. And so that's how I ended up um, uh, doing my PhD in history. And from there, um, in terms of turning to the specific questions that interested me, um, religion and atheism, the way that my attention turned to that is when I began to do my graduate work, it was very... um, 
uh, the, the narrative, the overall narrative that we had about the Soviet Union, or the big question, I guess, was about its totalitarian nature. And there, the, the kind of big debates in the field um, in, in Russian and Soviet history, as they had developed over time, really, you know, to kind of simplify it, uh, went from seeing this as a totalitarian regime to then a kind of turn to social history in which um, there was a kind of looking at the social base for, um, uh, you know, for Soviet power and not um, just looking at ideology and um, coercion. And then, um, you know, the, the kind of coming of age, I guess, uh, of this turn, the cultural turn um, that, that had been, that was kind of at its height when I entered um, graduate school. So looking at Soviet subjectivity and the kinds of um, people that were created through this kind of ideological regime. So, um, you know, the the thing that the kind of narrative or the metaphor that kind of got thrown around was this idea that communism was was like a religion or a religion. And um, I actually I went to UC Berkeley for graduate school. So my advisor was Yuri Sloskin, and he actually was working on um, he at that point was was working on the House of Government, which had come out, which came out last year. Um, which is a, a whole book about Bolshevism and the Bolsheviks as a millenarian sect. So, you know, these questions were in the air um, in, during my, during my uh, graduate training. But what I realized fairly quickly was uh, two things. One is that this kind of analogy of communism being a religion was really unexamined um, in, in any way that um, kind of in a, in a more than superficial way, because, for example, it was surprising to me that the Soviets never actually banned religion. Right. So there's this kind of assumption that this is an atheist state, um, which in fact, it wasn't an atheist state. It was an atheist party and a secular state. Right. So that kind of distinction was was surprising and one that I thought was really important, but that hadn't been hadn't really been analyzed. Um, and the, and so this idea that okay if, if communism is a religion but there's still religion kind of traditional religion then how does that actually play out because then it has a kind of competing um you know, religious narrative at play. And so there was this question of, okay, so how did they actually try to compete and replace traditional religion? Um, so there was literature on this, um, uh, on, on some of this for the early Soviet period in the 20s and 30s. And there was some great uh, work on, you know, for example, the League of Militant Godless. Um, but it still didn't um, answer for me the question of how this would enter into, especially into private life and into family life. Um, and when, uh, so I was interested in rituals in particular, life cycle rights. Um, so who would marry you? Who would baptize your child? If anybody, who would bury you? How would people, you know, transform these customary ways of being? And um, it was surprising to me that in fact, um, you know, most of those things really continued for long after the revolution. And um, most of those religious practices, um, to some degree, didn't really go anywhere. 
Um, and in as much as the Soviet regime tried to replace them, it was very much these kind of propaganda campaigns for, you know, red weddings or red funerals. Um, and, and they didn't really penetrate deeply into Soviet society. So, so that was the, the kind of starting point. And I went to the archives to, to look much more closely at this question of, of rituals, of atheist rituals. And when um, I found the archive of the Institute of Scientific Atheism, which is the kind of the central institution I examine in the book, um, there I discovered, you know, thousands of pages of transcripts of professional atheists, um, which is a profession that I believe really is unique to the Soviet project <laughs> to be a professional atheist. Um, and they would sit around in committees and try to solve these spiritual problems and, and answer spiritual questions like what is the meaning of life and how do we approach or address death and how do we get people to stop baptizing their children? What do we offer in its place? And I got completely sucked into those transcripts because um, what was surprising to me was that these were people who were asking these questions um, sincerely um, and really grappling with them. So that was fascinating. Um, but also in this completely, um, you know, to my eye at that point, in an absurd context in these kind of bureaucratic committees. Um, and then the second part that was surprising was this idea that, what was the fact that this was happening so late, that really these questions didn't become the central questions in Soviet ideology until the late 1950s and and 1960s. And that was the other question that needed answering is why did it take so long for these questions? You know, if it really was, if communism really was a religion, why did it take so long for it to address these very basic things that religions, um, you know, traditionally address? So those were my questions when I went in. Um, and that's what made the top, the subject of the book um, much broader. In a way, I wish that, um, you know, I, I, I wound up writing the book that I wished that somebody else had written so that I could write my book about, about you know, rituals and kind of look at all of these d diverse ways in which, um, you know, they, um, they were created and disseminated and how they succeeded and how they failed. I mean, there's a whole story there that only, only gets, you know, a little bit of attention in the book. But nobody, that was the, the final thing that I realized that, you know, atheism, Soviet atheism is really a project of the Khrushchev era and the Brezhnev era. And, and there wasn't really a study of that. And so to order, to, in order to really be able to understand what these rituals are even about, you have to kind of put them in a much bigger context. And so the book became much more about the political stakes of atheism, the ideological kind of narrative and unfolding of atheism. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that's how I wound up writing the book that I actually wrote. <laughs> It's just really funny that you went in trying to look at these specific ideas of rites and rituals and like, well, no one wrote the book, so I have to do that. And I'm glad you did because it's fascinating. Um, and some of the things you just said, what made Soviet atheism, Soviet atheism under Lenin and Stalin different from under Khrushchev and Brezhnev? You said that the Soviet project of really promoting atheism 
um, as an ideology really starts under Khrushchev. So how is it you dealt with under Lenin and Stalin? Yeah, well, I think, you know, in the book, I make this distinction um, that the Bolsheviks and the Communist Party, uh, you know, they, uh, that they look at religion as these kind of three distinct problems. And the first is this political problem, which is really about institutions and individuals um, being able to mobilize society, um, in this specific case, against Soviet power, so kind of counter-revolution. Um, and then there's the ideological problem of religion, which is this idea that people are... Um, you know, holding on to prejudices and and um, super, uh, superstitious beliefs, and they need to be enlightened, um, and that these prejudices and superstitions are are in fact uh, preventing Soviet people from really embracing the potential of co- the communist um, project, and and then the third side of it is the spiritual side which is okay how there are all of these things that religion does that aren't just about politics and aren't just about ideas and ideologies um but are about community and are about um uh ritual for example and are about aesthetic pleasure and um and emotions and um and so how will atheism deal with that? And that becomes the kind of final stage. So, you know, the, the question you asked is how, how is atheism different under Lenin and Stalin? And I guess the short answer is that it really, above all, is a political problem. Religion is a political problem, um, you know, up until in the early Soviet period, up until World War II. It's this question of, you know, how do we hold on to power? How do we... Um, make sure that religion both at home and abroad isn't mobilized to bring down the Soviet project. And, um, and so all, you know, these other aspects like ideology and enlightenment, right. And scientific enlightenment, which is, which is an important part of the ideological campaign or, you know, spiritual elements like rituals are, are really secondary and tertiary at, uh, in the early Soviet period, because the regime is really fighting for survival at that point. So, the, you know, what that means is largely the, the atheism, the, the kind of policy, the anti-religious policy is really anti-clerical um, in the way that we traditionally understand that. It's against clergy and church. Um, and atheism is militant atheism, and they call it militant atheism. Um, because again, it's it's this kind of war-like atheism, which is trying, which which is uh, you know deployed in the service of fighting counter-revolution. So it denounces um, you know priests and the church as as kind of uh, um, handmaiden of the autocratic state and as you know uh, swindlers that you know. Um, that take advantage of simple people. Um, so, so that's a kind of, it's a political rhetoric um, that's about undermining the social power of religious institutions and, um, and persons. Um, after, after, you know, by, you know, what I kind of point out or in the book that by, by the end of the 1930s, that political problem is basically solved from the regime's perspective. Um, 
you know, it doesn't see the the church, the Russian Orthodox Church being the primary one, but really religious institutions as as really a, a serious political threat by the end of the 1930s. They managed to neutralize it um, through all sorts of, um, you know, I think quite well-known um, repressive policies, um, um, you know, terror against the clergy, shutting down... Um, um, shutting down uh, or closing churches, um, you know, creating very restrictive laws um, for religious practice that basically keeps it primarily in the sphere of liturgy. And so religion becomes something that happens inside the church and that's it. Um, So, you know, in as much as they believe that problem to be solved, atheism is no longer necessary. Right, because it's only necessary in as much as it's addressing an actual problem. And so, what you see—the interesting and surprising thing you see—is that with World War II, atheism basically disappears, and it doesn't return until Khrushchev. So, for um, you know, from uh, the the League of Militant Godlesses disbanded in 1941. Uh, and it doesn't get, um, you know, it, the atheist project doesn't get resurrected until, um, you know, there's a kind of initial attempt to resurrect it in 1954. But really, we're looking at 1958 as the kind of start of Khrushchev's anti-religious campaign. And and so in a way, what's interesting is, um, on the other hand, religion is brought back into Soviet life. So Stalin makes this famous concordat with the church um, during the war. And there are all sorts of um, reasons for that. The two primary ones that that kind of scholars agree on are um, on the one hand, kind of bolster patriotism um, at home. And uh, this, on the other to kind of curry favor with the allies abroad, right. Who, who are consistently, um, uh, drawing attention to religious repression in the USSR. So the church actually is um, the patriarchate of the Russian Orthodox Church is restored. Um, the insti- there are new institutions established to manage church state affairs, the, the so-called councils on re- the Russian Orthodox Church um, and the Council on Religious Cults, which is dealing with all non-Orthodox confessions. Those are established in 1943 and 1944. And so really what you're looking at after the war is is basically no atheism. This is the late Stalin period from, you know, 45 to 53. There's really not much happening in terms of atheism other than maybe, you know, some lectures about um, astronomy, right, or something like this. And, um, and on the other hand, you're seeing churches being opened and and uh, and institutions that are there to manage church state affairs and the Russian Orthodox Church is becoming much more um, active um, also in the international arena. So um, so you have this very paradoxical situation, right, where it's the supposedly atheist state that where there's not really a lot of atheism happening. And it's not until Stalin dies and Khrushchev enters into the political arena and tries to re- define Soviet communism and kind of reinvigorate the project and return it to what he believes to be its original and authentic Leninist origins um, through this broader project of de-Stalinization that, um, that atheism becomes again necessary, but now not as a political 
um, phenomenon, but actually is an ideological one. So, so Khrushchev makes it very clear that whereas in the early Soviet period, atheist uh, or uh, religious institutions and believers were enemies, that under you know in the post-war period and under Khrushchev, these are no longer you know the church is patriotic. Believers are Soviet citizens, but they need to be enlightened. They are people who need to be rescued from their backwardness. And that becomes the new campaign. And and indeed, um, atheism itself is rebranded from being a militant atheism to being a scientific atheism. So it becomes scientific and really relies above all on um, various enlightenment um, practices, above all lecturing, basically lecturing at people about why religion is wrong and why science can help you understand the world much better than, um, than religious dogma or theology. It's really interesting. Uh, do, does the state or do any of the people who are promoting this, you know, atheism as a, as an ideology for life, do they ever see it as kind of a missionary project because it seems very missionary in terms of we have to civilize these people right you know they're backward <laughs> it's very oh, yeah. missionary. oh I, I mean absolutely i i think you know they don't it, it, you know the answer is, is is complicated because on the you know it's yes and no no in the sense that they never think of themselves as a religion or a church right um the church is a backward reactionary institution and there are a progressive, you know, um, radical institution in their mind and, and revolutionary. And so there, there's no analogy to be made there. However, um, they very much see themselves as in direct competition with the church or with religion in general, but with, uh, you know, I'm speaking usually about the Russian Orthodox church because it's just the dominant, um, the dominant confession in the Soviet Union and in the Russian areas of it, especially. So, so they don't kind of um, explicitly think about themselves as missionaries, but they are in directly responding to the perceived missionary activity of the church. Um, they, they, they very much are doing missionary work. And in fact, um, the, the people who, you know, this is, this is the big kind of problem for atheism is, and they talk about this as well, is, is, okay, so if we're doing missionary work, who are the missionaries, right? Like there isn't a kind of atheist church, actually, right? There's the party, but that's not a atheist church. So who is going to be doing this missionary work? Who's going to go out to the people and preach, you know, the truth? And the people they get kind of find themselves almost despite, you know, their intention of being there in this position are, are party ideology, a kind of propaganda cadres, um, teachers, right. Are kind of the mission playing the role of missionaries, but really above all, it's this, um, this, um, uh, lecturers who work for this um, for this Znania society or knowledge society, which is um, expanding treme- you know, exponentially under Khrushchev as an institution whose primary function is to enlighten the people. So these lecturers, in a way, are missionaries, though they would never actually see themselves this way, but they behave this way. And moreover, they even complain 
that unlike priests, they say this explicitly, unlike priests who are taught in seminaries, you know, hermeneutics and how to speak to people and how to, you know, effectively, um, you know, carry out a pastoral practice, they don't get taught any of this. And they're complaining to the party because they're failing at the task of missionary conversion. And they're saying, but how could we succeed when you're dealing with a priest who's actually trained in hermeneutics and we're not trained to, to do any of that? You know, we just sit there and read lectures from papers. And so, so it, but yet they never kind of explicitly say, you know, we're, you know, a missionary organization who is, you know, who's doing, you know, trying to spread the word. They just implicitly are. That's funny. We have to compete with the priests, but we don't have the priest's knowledge. Well, yeah, and the, and the, and the training, and I, you know, the most revealing. Okay, the most revealing episode of this, and I and I, you know, talk about this in the book. This is one of the, it's probably my favorite um, episode that I found in the archive, um, and I think it shows almost better than anything else the nature of this problem is. Um, is this moment when one of the kind of most fervent atheists um, who himself had been a seminarian and then a a teacher in a seminary, but then broke with religion and embraced atheism and became the first, really the first kind of major public atheist in the Soviet Union, Um, you know, going on a lecture tour and writing newspaper articles about, you know, why religion is darkness. So his name was Yevgraf Duluman. And I actually, um, uh, actually interviewed him for the book um, because he was still alive when I was doing my research and we, you know, we kind of corresponded. But I found in the archives of the Institute of Atheism um, a speech he gave uh, in a transcript where he's trying to explain to his atheist colleagues the nature of exactly the problem that you and I have been talking about. And he says, well, look, let me give you an example. I get sent to a village to do atheist work and, you know, they don't tell the villagers that I'm an atheist and I'm there to do atheist work. I'm just there, you know, kind of hanging out and looking at village life as far as the villagers are concerned. So they put me in this in this uh, hut with a family that they tell me is religious and I'm there to convert them, right, to kind of to, to, to explain to them why they shouldn't be religious. He says, now, of course, I don't kind of do this right away, right? I kind of get to know them. I stay with them. I, I you know, um, you know, earn their trust and, and develop a kind of relationship with them. So, you know, I'm just observing for a few days. And then, um, but what I notice, he says, so after a few days, I notice that every day the, um, you know, the father plays cards um, with his friends under the icon in the corner, and he says, and so he says, well, so I go to him when I finally decide to kind of do my atheist work, right? He says, I go to him and I say, don't you know that you shouldn't play cards under the icon in the corner? That's blasphemy. And the guy says, well, the icons, the, the icons are used to it. They don't care. It kind of like blows them off, right? He says, so then I try to... Um, so then I try to reason with him and say, you know, you shouldn't... Um, 
you know, you, you baptize your children, but you're just giving um, money to the priests, you know, who, who are, you know, it, it, well, first of all, it's unhygienic, right? Your children are going to get sick because you're baptizing them in this filthy water. And then also you're giving money to these priests and these priests are, you know, are, are parasites and, you know, you're just giving them, you know, your hard earned money for nothing. And the guy says, well, you know, I hope the priest, he says, I know, you know, I don't like the priest and I hope he chokes on the money, but everybody baptizes their kid and I'm going to baptize mine. And so the, <laughs> the Levon is kind of, you know, checkmated into this. And he says, and so he says, well, were you baptized? The, the, the religious guy asks the atheist, you know, who's preaching to him. He says, were you baptized? And Dulamon, of course, like most people, you know, in that generation was baptized. So he says, yeah. And he goes, see, you were baptized. I was baptized. All of Mother Russia was baptized. And look how fine it all turned out. <laughs> and, and he says, so, so he's kind of relaying this as like, how am I supposed to talk to these guys, right? How am I supposed to convince them when they're just like unreasonable? They don't respond to reason. All the kind of logical arguments I throw at them, they just don't care. So in a way, um, you know, I remember at one point telling the story to a colleague of mine and we kind of were laughing because in a way it's like, how is his effort to discipline this peasant playing cards under an icon um, any different than a priest, right? Like a priest would come mm -hmm. in and don't play cards under the icon. Right? And so, and so in a way, you know, like in order for him to convert this guy to being a good atheist, he first would have to make him a good Christian, right? Like he would have to first show the guy that this is wrong, right? And kind of make, discipline him to understand why this behavior is against, you know, against his religion to then say, but actually your religion is wrong. So actually, you know, <laughs> So there's a kind of multiple step conversion that needs to happen. And, you know, a lot of the atheists, and this is a guy, right? Dulaman is a guy who actually did have training in hermeneutics, right? And pastoral work and all of this. And he's actually well-versed in theology. But, you know, 99% of atheists, professional atheists, were not Dulaman. They were not former seminarians with, you know, with theological degrees. They were just guys and they would just encounter situations like this and just throw up their hands. You know, so what are you going to say? That's one of the one of the best stories and in, in like you talking about this idea that okay I have an icon but I'm an atheist so it doesn't really matter and you talk about this in your book and you have different people mentioning it Trotsky mentions it like mm -hmm. this idea of but so like what is yeah. but and what is what does it mean and how does its worth vary and change you know from Lenin and Stalin to Khrushchev and mm -hmm. Brezhnev mm -hmm. well I, I think the kind of the the most the forward or kind of straightforward definition is, you know, the way it's usually translated is everyday life, right? So wit is, is everyday life. Um, I think everyday life doesn't quite um, actually capture some important aspects of it that were important for this project in particular. And that's um, the kind of sense of this everyday life being customary, right? Or kind of grounded in tradition and custom. And so really, um, 
you're talking about a kind of way of life, right? The Brit is, a, is the way of life of a group of people. Um, and it permeates their, the way that they organize their time, their space, how they understand their relationship to one another, to themselves, to the transcendent, right? It's a kind of system of, um, a, a kind of, let's say, anarchic system of beliefs and practices um, and relationships. And as Trotsky, you know, Trotsky was very focused on this because he said, you know, this is the most conser- conservative sphere of human life, right? This is where people are the least likely to change, right? Why, why do I need to stop baptizing my child or crossing myself when I, you know, walk you know, past an icon, or why do I need to do things that I have done, that my parents have done, and there's this perception that they've always been done this way, and mm-hmm. why would I be the one that that somehow breaks with that way of doing things when that's just the way things are done, right? It's, 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 a, it's a sphere that's kind of taken for granted. Um, now, Trotsky and the kind of the the um, the Bolsheviks from the early Soviet period who really um, thought about this question, um, who were in the sphere of kind of cultural enlightenment, they would, you know, they would propagate so-called new wit, right? So this this con- uh, effort to change the ways that people live their lives and introduce new practices and get rid of backward old practices. Um, and that included all sorts of things, not just, you know, baptizing, you know, not baptizing, but having a red christening or, um, you know, red birth ritual, but also, you know, things like hygiene or you know, reading as a, as a kind of way to pass your leisure time, right? All of this, um, which was by no means customary in Russia, right? Before the revolution for the majority of the people, the idea that you would sit around and read, right? In the so-called reading hut um, or spend your time going to lectures about, you know, astronomy as a, as a kind of leisure activity. That's just that, that, you know, you, 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 you know, these, these things were not, useful in the traditional kind of set sense right so you so this is a kind of attempt to introduce them into life um in the uh, to people where that had not you know embraced these practices in the past so um so this this was a sphere that was traditionally understood to be um conservative to be least um most resistant to change um, it was considered to be backward in Russia because they considered Russia to be backward. So therefore, its customary ways were inherently backward and needed to be modernized and and um, tra- and changed. Um, and it was also the sphere to which people they perceived, um, on the one hand, people to be the most attached, you know, the least willing to give up those practices, and therefore. On the other hand, the sphere in which Soviet power had the least presence, the kind of least, um, uh, that, that it really was aware that it didn't penetrate that, um, that part of Soviet life. Um, that when people went home and shut the door, a lot of them, you know, they did, it's not that they didn't um, embrace Soviet practices, you know, that, that was part of it, but they continued to also... Um, you know, live their lives as their parents had lived their lives, and this was this was the the practices that the Soviet um, 
ideological apparatus really wanted to to break. So that was this was the kind of the final frontier, if you will, of the of the atheist campaign was to create a kind of atheist wit. That's interesting because when you were talking earlier about the different changes in Soviet historiography and like a focus on totalitarianism and I think when you're looking at religion and how they're trying to inculcate these, you know, atheistic practices, you we kind of touch on the idea of the totalitarian sphere, but it it's very similar to religion and religious practices. I mean, you see it in modern churches now saying, you know, you're Christian on Sunday, but what are you on Monday? Mm-hmm. So you see it the same way. You're a Soviet atheist, you know, at work. So what are you at home? So it's interesting that these questions of atheism and religion are very similar. But in the Soviet space, we tend to frame it as, you know, a totalitarian way of being rather than seeing it as a change of belief system, similar to what we see in modern Christianity. Yeah, well, this is and this is where it gets interesting and, and political, I think, right? Because, <laughs> because in a way... Um, why, you know, when people use terms like political religion or totalitarianism, the inherent connotation is that this is bad. Mm-hmm. That, this is, that this, you know, what is a political religion? It's politics that acts like a religion, which is, we all understand to be wrong, somehow, you know, transgressive of the sphere where politics is allowed to act on human life, right? So there, so there's this sense, right, you, you know, why it, when, it, when nobody says the word political religion in a positive way. Um, so, you know, there are things, the assumption there, the kind of unarticulated assumption is that there are things that are inherent to and perfectly acceptable for religion. For example, you know, who are you on Monday if you were in church, you know, as opposed to Sunday when you're not, you know, when you're in church. Uh, whereas um, the, these same kind of uh, structures and practices are considered to be some kind of violation when they are political. And, you know, you could say, okay, well, in some ways it's because religion is grounded in an authority that is outside the human and so you don't question, you know, the, the kind of um, demands that are placed on you because they're considered to be outside of, of um, you know, of human behavior, or of human society, whereas politics is very much grounded in the human. So you do question the demands that a political regime is placing on you because you're then having one set of people or one person, in effect, uh, with a great deal of authority over another group of people. And this is somehow perceived to be wrong, right? Now, I'm not, you know, again, I'm not, this is, I'm, I'm kind of trying to flesh out the things that we don't usually talk about when we throw around these terms. But, you know, of course, uh, uh, religions, and I would say, um, certain religions more than others, their ambitions are totalitarian, they want you to live by the precepts of the faith, right? They don't want you to leave those behind and and behave differently in different contexts. They want you to, you know, to live in a world that is imbibed with those values everywhere. Um, so yeah, of course, it's total. You could say it's totalitarian. Um, you know, I think some are more than others. What's interesting is that 
a lot of religions are like that in theory, but they're not like that in practice. So for example, um, you know, the, you could say, you know, the Catholic church, for example, is one that tolerates a great deal of, gives, gives the, 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 the lay person a good deal of leeway in their behavior, right. In, in the kind of, um, in the world. Um, and, in a way, the Orthodox Church as well, right? They don't excommunicate people for not living up to every precept of the faith, mm-hmm. um, because in Orthodoxy, you know, and in like in Catholicism, above all, what's important is not—it's not just what you believe; it's that you recognize the authority of the Church, right? So, as long as you recognize the authority of the Church, and you don't question that authority and you, um, you know, behave in accordance with its precepts, um, you know, whether or not you actually believe or don't believe is a kind of um, less is a secondary kind of question to some degree, Um, which is interesting in the Soviet context, because, um, you know, the Russian you know, they're so focused on Russian orthodoxy and, or, you know, I mean, this is again, a very, in a way like a stereotype, but you know, the liturgy is so important in orthodoxy. And so I think it's not accidental that they land on socialist rituals as really being the primary um, tool or weapon that they should focus on in, in trying to marginalize orthodoxy and overcome and replace orthodoxy. Because, you know, what they're seeing is even when people, you know, say they don't believe in God and really don't do almost anything else, um, you know, and religion doesn't appear in their lives in any way, they will still baptize their child and they will still have a religious funeral. And so this is Orthodox people. And so, um, and so they realize that, you know, this is where the, the majority of Soviet people still have ties to religion and the church. Right? It's not about what they believe. And so then the question becomes, why did the party not just do what the church does to some degree <laughs> and, and kind of just live with the contradiction, right? Like the church, if it, 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 okay, so thinking about it a little bit differently, you know, the Catholic church, because all of its um, members you know, purported members are not all living a perfect Catholic life. It doesn't say, well, we failed, we should close up shop. Right. Uh (laughs) Which is in effect kind of how the atheists and the communists are reading it. They're like, Oh my God, nobody's doing the right thing. We should, you know, does this mean we're wrong? Right. This is, and, and I think that's the part that's really interesting, right? Like the Catholic church doesn't say, Oh my God, if we, are we wrong? Nobody's listening to us. You know, people are doing, you know, doing things that they shouldn't be doing. And, and, and does this mean that, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna fail. It, it's like a very different, um, you know, the kind of, um, and this, I think this is really where I think Yuri Sloskin's work is very helpful because that kind of um, pressure on the member is really, I mean, almost, you know, it's, it, you know, you can have those kinds of demands on a small sect, right. Mm-hmm. But it's very hard to expand, you know, that and demand that level of adherence um, and devotion and conviction of 140 million people, right. That's in a way that 
that is, that was their criteria for success. You know, they would succeed when all Soviet people became disciplined, convinced communists and atheists and would do nothing that would contradict their conviction, which meant that they could not baptize their kid because that would, you know, is at odds with their atheist conviction. And if it's at odds with their atheist conviction, then they wouldn't do it. Right. And so if that's your standard for success, you know, that's okay if you're a sect and you can live outside the world, but that's a very different kind of project as a political project, right? The, I mean, to, to kind of measure your um, progress in those terms. Um, so I think, you know, Yuri Soskin's book, it really does a, a really incredible job of showing that, that, that this kind of demands, the uncompromising, um, you know, unwillingness to what they you know called appeasing right or or hypocrisy um or indifference all of these things were intolerable you couldn't be indifferent to soviet ideology and have the party be okay with that right in, now i'm talking in theory right in practice of course by the end everybody was indifferent to soviet ideology and the party knew it and this is you know this is kind of where the book ends um but in theory right that's why they they this for them is perceived as such a crisis because they see that everybody's indifferent they're aware of it they try to address it and um and you know by that point it's pretty clear that if they want to hold on to political power, they can't continue to try to convert people to a system of values and ideology that has been discredited. Right. There's this really great quote, and it kind of shows this interesting syncretism between Soviet ideology and religion, where a worker says, we believe in God, Lenin, and Khrushchev. And he mm-hmm. doesn't see anything wrong with that. And so you're like, if the party would just kind of accept that, like, okay, we've reached a level of God in terms of they understand us and they appreciate us. But like this constant drive to clear out all religion, it, it kind of speaks mm-hmm. to the inability of the state to kind of grapple with this holdover from Russian culture. If you understand, like people are Orthodox, they may not be great Orthodox, but you know, Orthodox followers, but they do do some of these rituals and Mm -hmm. kind of take that and change that. And they kind of do, you talk about the rituals and there's Mm -hmm. some amazing rituals you talk about in the book. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, can we talk about the wedding palaces and the cosmonaut Mm -hmm. wedding? Because those are some of my favorite parts (laughs) of the book. Well, I, so if you think about, um, you know, Christianity, right? It goes from being this very um, demanding millenarian sect to spreading and adapting to different places and cultures um, and incorporating the, so you know, kind of traditional or let's say, you know, quote unquote, pagan practices into the broader repertoire, right, of Christian liturgy. So, you know, they, that that is something that, um, you know, that in a way allows a a new religion to feel authentic to a group of people, right? Because it continues to speak to things that they already find to be meaningful. 
and and they continue practices but it has you know and with time that kind of overlay becomes invisible and it just seems like it's always been that way so the soviets you know also were aware of this and um and the rituals they they do eventually um you know the book is organized chronologically right and i think it's 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 telling that they come to the you know the ritual chapter is chapter six of seven right so they eventually get to this issue of rituals and they are aware in creating rituals um, that really they have to um, incorporate local tradition so what they, their ideal scenario is one in which it they take what they see as folk rituals they clean out you know all of the religious nonsense and they insert you know um soviet patriotism and lenin and then you have a good soviet ritual right you're doing some kind of you know a practice that incorporates you know um you know, folk costumes, right, which are different. If you're in Belarus, it looks one way. If you're in Ukraine, it looks another way. If you're in Georgia, it looks a third way, right? So there's this acknowledgement, right, that people come to these practices with a history that they're not, you know, born yesterday and are ready to embrace a kind of complete new, completely new system. So they do, um, they do do this. And, um, and then, the the you mentioned the cosmonaut wedding um you know this this was the kind of let's say like maybe like the opening salvo right of this project because um it was entirely new and you know in the in 1958 um basically what you have is the Komsomol, the communist youth league coming together and raising this issue of you know why can't i mean to, kind of to make it very um basic, you know, why can't we as Soviet young people have a nice wedding? So, which is, in, you know, an interesting thing to talk about in the late 50s, because then it makes you realize that up until the late 50s, Soviet young people didn't, you know, if they were in the Komsomol, right, in the Communist Youth League, you know, what, what a wedding looked like was you went to the local, you know, the kind of equivalent of city hall, the local registry bureau, you signed some papers, and then, you know, went home and had a party, maybe, right, or maybe not. And so at some point in the late 50s, as part of this atheist campaign, they said, well, why can't we create atheist rituals? You know, we didn't have weddings because they're religious, but why can't we have you know, Soviet socialist ones. And, um, and then of course, by this is around the same time that the ideological apparatus is also recognizing that it's those rituals, those same rituals, which are the most tenacious element of religion. And so they say, yeah, right. Okay. So let's create some rituals. And what we need is also elevated ritual spaces. You can't have a nice, beautiful Soviet wedding in a bureaucratic office, which is would be the only space available in 1957, right? So they open up, um, they create what they call wedding palaces, and they start opening these wedding palaces. They open the first ones in Leningrad, then in Moscow, and then actually all over the whole Soviet Union. Um, they also open um, uh, in not in a 
and not as broadly, but um, baby palaces. So, you know, uh, places where you could register the birth of a child. And this was another kind of socialist ritual that was um, promoted. Um, And so, you know, they open up these wedding palaces and actually people take to them, you know, quite a bit, you know, because why not? You know, before you had to go to an office and sign some papers, now you get to wear a beautiful dress, have a party, you know, drink some champagne, and all of this is happening in a beautiful space as opposed to in a shabby office with some, you know, uh, disgruntled lady kind of shoving papers at you, right? So this is, this is, you know, this actually worked. This was quite popular. Um, and um, and the, the kind of biggest, let's say, propaganda moment in the early opening kind of salvo of this campaign was that the the first female cosmonaut in the world, Valentina Tereshkova, uh, was getting married to a male cosmonaut, Adrian Nikolaev. This was a huge event. And Khrushchev, um, you know, said, well, you know, they're going to have a Soviet wedding in Moscow, palace wedding palace number one and yuri gagarin the first man in space was their witness and valentina tereshkova was there wearing a white wedding dress and you know this is like the the sign the symbol of female liberation and um and yeah they have this cosmonaut wedding and then you know of course because it's cosmonauts and this is in 1963 because it's cosmonauts everybody you know, is reading this, is watching this. This is like a huge celebrity event. You know, it's like watching, I don't know, uh, a royal wedding, right? Everybody's like, what is Megan wearing? And, you know, so they're looking at, at at the same thing and following, you know, where did they go? What did they do? Um, you know, how how does it look? And this, um, you know, the coverage of it is is meticulous and just saying, oh, first they, you know, they say these and then the lady in the palace says this, you know, so in a way, it's a kind of way to teach Soviet people, including Soviet local officials, how to conduct a proper Soviet wedding. Um, but it's being done not, you know, under the guise of just relaying, right, how, um, how these two celebrities tie the knot. Um, actually, one photograph that's not in the book, um, because it doesn't quite, you know, it's not central to the argument, but it's a photograph I found um, in the archive, and I think it just speaks to the kind of celebrity stature of the cosmonauts. It's actually a photo taken outside of the um, maternity ward when Valentina Tereshkova had her child because they had a child, the, the, the female and male cosmonaut, right? So they had a cosmonaut baby. And it's a photograph taken on the day that she's supposed to be leaving this maternity ward with her baby. And it is just a sea of people waiting for her to come out with this baby. And you're just looking at it like, I think it's just hard to comprehend. You know, there are people sitting on each other's shoulders. There are people hanging off trees. There are people, you know, on light poles. I mean, it's just a complete celebrity circus 
for this woman and her baby. And you're going to think of, you know, a, a, what a woman, you know, it's, it's like what happens, with, you know, with, with Kate Middleton, right? Mm-hmm. Like when she comes out with her baby, right? So, so the, I just, I, I point this out because this image just communicates the, the kind of celebrity power of, of these people. So of course you're going to, you know, deploy them if you're trying to promote new practices as, you know, new norms, um, that you hope people will do because every Soviet person wanted to be a cosmonaut. So yeah, they get married like that too. Well, Victoria, we've taken up a lot of your time today. Um, but before we sign off, I want to ask you the famous last question of New Books Network. What are you working on now? Well, I am working, one of the things I didn't, get to do in this book um, was deal with, so this book is about the internal development of atheism as part of communist ideology. And it really deals with Soviet communism as a kind of closed system. And that means that it really privileges the Russian Orthodox church and Russian Orthodoxy as the kind of um, norm, right, with which um, the Soviet regime or Soviet ideologies in conversation. Um, What I had to not address as much as I wanted to um, was uh, non-Orthodox groups in the book, um, which I I had done the research, but it just, you know, became unwieldy as a narrative and also foreign policy um, and the international situation. So I'm working in a book that in some ways is a kind of mirror image of this book, if you can kind of see what I mean, in that it, um, deals with non-Orthodox groups. I'm dealing primarily with the Catholic church, but, um, also with, um, with groups with religious confessions concentrated on the Western borderlands. So in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, West Ukraine, um, and looking at um, the role that religion played on the one hand in Soviet foreign policy and on the other in um, international um, and global politics as a kind of mobilizing force for anti-communism. So, um, so it's, a, it's a kind of global history that, that looks at the religious factor as it kind of mobilized different groups outside the Soviet Union. And then how the Soviet Union would respond to, you know, for example, the efforts of human rights activists to draw attention to religious repression or, uh, you know, um, religious tourists bringing in religious objects or Radio Vatican, you know, blasting um, and, you know, in, uh, across Soviet borders, um, broadcasting across Soviet borders. Um, so, so, you know, I think one of the... Um, I think anti-communism has been is a tremendously powerful phenomenon that hasn't yet been adequately understood and kind of discussed outside of the American context um, and certainly not in conversation with what's actually going on in the Soviet Union. And so that's that's my hope is to kind of put those two histories that have usually been distinct and kind of not in conversation with one another into a bigger conversation um, that, you know, that that's transnational and that allows you to actually see how different groups are relating to each other and responding to each other. 
That sounds like a perfect follow-up to A Sacred Space is Never Empty. Um, well, Victoria, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. I think the listeners are going to enjoy it. And take care. Thank you so much, Kimberly. Thank you for having me.